The Dry Cleaner Cast presents Need to Know. Need to Know is a podcast featuring conversations with security experts focused on the terrorism and intelligence stories dominating the headlines. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. This is Need to Know. On today's podcast, Malcolm Nance returns. Malcolm was with us last back in December 2016. God, that was a that was a long time ago, wasn't it? Anyway, Malcolm is back and we're going to discuss the Russia connection to Brexit. If you don't know who Malcolm Nance is, well, you're missing out. Malcolm Nance is the author of a fantastic book called The Plot to Destroy Democracy. His previous book, The Plot to Hack America, was a New York Times bestseller. He's also a counterterrorism and intelligence consultant for the US government. And he is the counterterrorism and Russia analyst for MSNBC and NBC News. Malcolm Nance is pretty much everywhere at the moment. So do check him out online. You can go to his Twitter handle, which is at Malcolm Nance. And if you want to read more about what we were discussing today, click on the image in your podcast app. There will be an Amazon link to purchase a copy of The Plot to Destroy Democracy, which is Malcolm's most recent book. And if you purchase through the Amazon link, you will be supporting this podcast. So thank you. And if you like what I'm doing, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. You can go to patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast. If you don't wish to become a paid subscriber, that's absolutely fine. You can leave me a tip. I will leave a little link where you can actually leave a small tip. If you think this podcast was worth a few quid, then feel free to leave a few quid. Any money you leave goes towards helping keep this podcast going, goes to hosting fees, new equipment and software. Also, if you like what I'm doing, please leave a review on your podcast app. All reviews help us build a wider audience and get our get our podcast out there. The more people who find it, the more popular the podcast will become. So the more popular it becomes, that would be great. So yeah, please do share the podcast with your friends, family and colleagues. And please do leave a review on your podcast app. Anyway, we will now get going. So thank you very much for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. Take care. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film The Dry Cleaner. Welcome back to the podcast, Malcolm. My pleasure to be here. I think we're going to dive straight into this. Can you tell us why Putin is so popular with the far right? That's an excellent question. Well, as you know, I wrote in my book, The Plot to Destroy Democracy, which uh, came out last year. That was a New York Times bestseller, uh, which was about Putin's strategy yeah. and why he carried out the activities that he did in the United States, uh, the cyber warfare operations here, the operations that he carried out against Brexit, yeah, um, you know, amplifying the message of the vote leave. Why he attacks, uh, you know, the the governments, uh, the you know, the democratic governments in Europe. Um, you know, Russia has had a strategy that appears to have been playing out at least for the last ten years, in which, uh, you know, I, I have to step back in history a little bit. You all know that. You know, Russia in, after nine, before 1989 was the Soviet Union, uh, a communist totalitarian state, which collapsed of its own weight uh, as the ideology was non-viable for the modern world. It collapsed after 70 years. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, 
the question is, what replaced it? And what were the, the Russian people going to be after that? You know, they, they wanted consumer goods. They wanted to be in the, a modern capitalist society. Yeah. And that's what happened immediately after the fall of the Soviet Union. The big question is, you know, what were they fundamentally? And by the time Vladimir Putin became president in 2001, Russia was congealing from this freewheeling, you know, Western-oriented capitalist society where Westerners were coming in and, and living there, you know, sort of like China after China opened up. Um, and, and they started congealing into what they are today, which is Russia is fundamentally a conservative Christian nation and far more conservative than the United States or any other country in the West is. They're very fundamentally conservative and very fundamentally Orthodox, you know, Russian Orthodox Christians. And so the social activities that were coming in from the West, the openness of the, you know, the gay agenda, you know, diversity and, and freedom of speech, these things were not sitting well. But between 1989 and, and 2000. And so when Vladimir Putin came in, he came in as a strong man uh, who understood the, the, the waves of, of, of rejection that the Russians were feeling. And so with that, he, for, from in his first term, you know, consolidated Russia and started showing a vision of Russia as a strong unitary state in which conservative Christian values were the, going to be the basis of his administration. In fact, as, as the first director of the FSB, which is, the, you know, which is technically the KGB with different letters, right? Mm -hmm. One of the first acts that he did was um, he renovated the Russian Orthodox Church that sat next to KGB headquarters, now FSB headquarters on Derzinski Square. And, and, you know, these churches during the time of the Soviet Union were used as places of repression and torture, you know? <laughs> so for him mm -hmm. to do that made him this, you know, this figure that the more conservative Russians could, 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 could rally around. Yeah, so Putin very much had a plan, didn't he? Sure. But now, how does that, what does that have to do with American conservatism? Around 2010, uh, Russia started opening up to conservative groups on very specific platforms that were of like-minded groups. And the first group was uh, conservative Christian religious of uh, figures from the ultra-right extreme in the United States. These were extremist anti-gays, extremist anti-diversity, extremist whites, to be quite honest. Mm. Uh, and then they started opening up, you know, as a matter of fact, every year they were holding religious conferences in Moscow for the organization of families and to the point where um, Franklin Graham uh, Billy Graham, the evangelist's son, who runs one of the largest charities in the world, Samaritan's Purse, and his empire and a university in the United States, was coming every year for these conferences and actually saw Vladimir Putin, as he would put it, as a friend to Christianity. And these conferences switched 
when Barack Obama was president, from just fundamentalist, you know, rejectionism to the defense of Christianity. And that was their theme. And when they would use that phrase, what they really meant was the defense of Christian values against diversity, against essentially all the factors of the modern world as the United States has developed over 243 years. You know, uh, e pluribus unum, from many one. And so the right-wing Christians in the United States saw Russia and were actually saying this uh, by 2010, between 2010 and 2012, were saying that Russia was now the center of conservative Christianity. And so Russia played to that and were, again, was holding these conferences. This is where they sent Maria Butina and Alexander Torshin to the United States to co-opt the National Rifle Association, to lay their lines of, of influence down amongst Republican, you know, uh, Republican leadership. All of this is where their brand of conservatism sort of took over American mm. conservatism. And American conservatives were open that Vladimir Putin was their idea of a leader. Vladimir Putin was their idea of a conservative Christian and that Russia, you know, with its hot Eastern women, uh, you know, many of which these Americans were, were seeing from, you know, uh, from mail order brides and online pornography, viewing them as these penultimate types of women to have, um, just absolutely fascinating. But it's really led to the Russian co-option of the American conservative parties. Yeah. And how how deep is Russia into American and European right-wing culture? Very deep. And it's surprising. As a matter of fact, when I started Plot to Destroy Democracy, it started out as a treatise about Russia uh, mm. carrying out this, this, this strategic plan where they saw opportunities, they took opportunities to co-opt the United States. And so as I studied it deeper, it became clear the United States was last. I mean, they had made great inroads since the first uh, Putin administration in 2001. They had made incredible inroads into European conservative parties. In fact, you could say European conservatism is owned lock, stock, and barrel by Russia. The, some of the largest parties, including UKIP and the United Kingdom, uh, were greatly yeah. influenced by Russian money, Russian relationships, uh, you, know, uh, you know, many Central European countries. Italy, uh, as you see now, their, their, their most recent iteration of government is a fascist-oriented government, which is backed by Russia. Russia funded uh, the you know, Golden Dawn, yeah. the Greek fascist European movement, Viktor Orban and his party in Hungary, which is, which is an ultra-conservative party, openly funded by Russia, and most surprisingly, um, the Front National in France, and, you know, Marine Le Pen's party. Marine Le Pen publicly took 50 million euros from United Russia and Vladimir Putin. And in fact, uh, when she lost her election, there was a funny meme that was going around that had a picture of a stern looking Putin 
uh, taken at some conference, a stern-looking Putin looking at Marine Le Pen with the subtitle, where's my money at, bitch? Uh, technically, <laughs> France was, owned, was to be owned by Russia. Yeah. Right-wing concern. And what's fascinating is these are parties like the government of Austria, the party uh, OFP, Austria Alternative for Austria, which was founded in 1952 as by two Waffen SS officers, right? Real Nazis, mm. which are now funded and backed by United Russia. So Russia funds fundamentalist neo Nazi and conservative you know, groups which have fascist leanings, which is fascinating because in the Soviet Union, they fought these groups in World War II and smashed them around the world. Uh, Absolutely interesting. It's fascinating. And the other thing as well, I mean, Putin appears to also be an attractive figure on the far left in both Europe and the U- and um, the USA. Why is that, especially with all these right wing connections? Because it seems quite obvious that he, you know, he's sort of trying to exploit the, the far right. Well, I think you should. I think you may be mischaracterizing it when you call it the mm. far left. There is a version of the left which is not liberal at all. Right. Mm. It's uh, mm. it's the the ultra left, which you would technically yeah. call the uh, call libertarian left. Yeah. And the libertarian left, like the libertarian right, are fundamentally libertarian and libertarianism. For those who don't really know what it is, is technically I've got mine. Screw you. Right. <laughs> yeah. so, that's, that's how you describe American libertarians. And you have these characters on the extreme left glenn greenwald uh you know Mm. the writer who who helped you know edward snowden defect to russia and you know who is now a fox news commentator a paid fox news commentator who is almost an open apologist for russia and putin very few of those in the united states in the west way more uh ultra conservatives and neoconservatives uh now i should just say American and, and European conservatism is just openly in the pocket of, you know, under the sway of Russia mm-hmm. and, and thankful to be there uh, again as this great Christian savior nation as far as they're concerned. Yeah, but it's fascinating because like Glenn Greenwald at the moment has been for the last two years, whilst everybody else has been sort of talking about the potential collusion and uh, Russia's interference in American elections and other elections, Glenn Greenwald seems to be going out of his way to kind of play that down. Yeah, yeah and he uses his he uses his platform, The Intercept, uh, you know, yeah. which had some great writers, Jeremy Scahill and others, which when it came out was sort of a groundbreaking organization, you know, these muckrakers who showed government transparency, who, you know, but I, I mean, I read Greenwald and he and I have some very famous public diffs. <laughs> well, most notably when he went to Moscow last year to meet Snowden. Okay. Yeah. Now you're talking to a guy. I worked at the national security agency. I know that it's an organization of 20,000 you know, uh, mom and pops who are good hearted, good natured people who just want to catch bad people. It's not an evil agency. Uh, you would never, I mean, it's like GCHQ. You would just not recognize these people on the street because they look like your neighbors. It's just that they do phenomenal work of, you know, that of secretive work. 
Um, these people, you know, like, like Greenwald and Snowden, they believe now, I don't know whether they believe Russia is a nation that's to be admired for, but, you know, Edward Snowden is literally lives under the control of the FSB. You cannot walk up and see Snowden at the Starbucks in Moscow, right? Yeah. Uh, this guy is a defector. He took to the unit to, to Russia all of the secrets of the NSA. And, you know, you hear all these people on the left, who, not the left, but the ultra left, who say, mm. well, he was trying to get to Ecuador. It's like, really? So you go to Hong Kong, you meet with the Chinese, then you meet with the Russian ambassador, and then you end up in Moscow. And they all say, oh, it's because you took his passport away. He's defecting. Okay, mm. he's literally running away with our secrets in his pocket. Yeah. And now, you know, he lives in Moscow. And, you know, in the old days, I mean, you know, I'm sure he's probably teaching at the Yuri Andropov School of Intelligence now and saying that he's just giving seminars to interested, you know, Russian youth. No. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I wanted to quickly ask you about the kind of the Russian connection to Brexit, because in Britain, we're getting very close to Brexit Day. I can't think of a better term for it. Right. There seems to be a lot of talk of there was a potential Russian interference in the in the kind of decision making process, a bit similar to the 2016 um, presidential elections in the US. Well, actually, believe it or not, Brexit yeah. and the first Scottish referendum were information yeah. there were what we call message amplification campaign. Mm. 2016 is the perfect example of how it was done, where you take an opposing message, you put it out in social media, you use you know automated software to amplify that message across social media disproportionately using bots, right? Automated software. Mm. Well, these things were found out in the po post-mortems to have been carried out you know, in the Scottish referendum and in Brexit as well. In fact, Cambridge Analytica is suspected by the United Kingdom government of playing a big role in, in, in amplifying the Leave campaign. That's why you have in the investigation that's being carried out in the, in the Commons about Facebook and their, their culpability in doing this amplification. You know, the funny thing is, is that if you go back and you look at some of the players who were involved in this, including Nigel Farage and, you know, some of the biggest Brexiteers, they all have these illicit Russian contacts who are the same people as the ones in the United States who were associated with the Kremlin putting Donald Trump into power. Yeah, and Nigel Farage in particular uh, very famously had a picture with the Russian ambassador in London and also was spotted coming out of the Ecuadorian embassy uh, right. during the time as well. You know, and I wouldn't be surprised. Look, you know, this this investigation in the United States is so deep. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point Farage was drawn into it criminally. Yeah. And the worst part is, you know, all of this sounds crazy. Right? All of this sounds like conspiracy theories. It well. does. <laughs> and as, a prof as an intelligence professional, I've been at this for three and a half decades. Um, you know, I just cannot even believe the stuff that I'm writing and the words that I'm saying, but all of it holds up to, you know, to the point where we now have uh, a, 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 a prosecutor who is dredging up all of this information and in what is arguably the, the single 
most serious scandal in the history of the United States, and it could become the most serious in the history of Britain. Indeed, and it's, it's yeah, and it's it's dividing Europe because if Brexit does happen, it seems to be that there are other countries that are considering their own version of it, who might take inspiration from our leaving the EU. Well, I don't. I think, in fact, Brexit will be the uh, will be the yardstick by which everyone will know never to do anything like <laughs> Probably, this again. Yeah. I think it will actually strengthen. I think it will strengthen mm. the union. Look at Britain. Look at look at the UK right now. The pound is down thirty percent mm. from where it was, and you haven't even gotten to the bad part yet. Look at what's going to happen on Brexit Day when people will require visas. Yeah. To be in your country where, you know, country, uh, businesses right now have all got these emergency abandoned ship plans to move. You know, the country, the, the place that's going to benefit the most yeah. is Ireland, because all you have to do is move your office space to Dublin, uh, you know, and, and then shift your staff over and you're back in the EU and you really don't have much, uh, much impact. It's not like you have to move to Sweden or Scotland or you know, Sweden or, uh, you know, some other country in the EU. Um, so that being said, I think that it will show that you will damage yourself. And I believe the United Kingdom will be horribly economically. I, I, yeah, I believe. Yeah. If, you know, I, I, I see people talking about, I heard the most amazing thing. I was reading the guardian a, a week ago and Someone on the right said we should bring Donald Trump over. Oh, I know. To Honestly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a class of people. Every once in a while, I talk on LBC, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's a, you know people call in to give their opinions, and there's this there's this whole Trump supporting class mm. in in the United Kingdom who are just as ignorant as the Americans, you know, the Walmart shopping Americans who put Donald Trump in, who think of him as some sort of crusading knight who, you know, as we say here, yeah. he's a stupid man's version of a smart man. Yeah. <laughs> and they just don't understand your country is headed towards an economic crash that is undocumentable because yeah. no one's ever done it. And then they believe that the United States is going to rescue them with these unilateral trade deals. Trump has stiffed everyone he has ever dealt with. Yeah. So if you think the U.S. is coming to rescue you, this isn't Lend-Lease, okay? Yeah. This is of your own making. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, I, no, America's definitely not coming to rescue us at this time. <laughs> oh, man. It's, yeah, it's, it's worrying. It really is. I mean, yeah, on so many levels, Brexit really is quite worrying and disturbing um one quick thing as well so um one thing i've got to ask you about was russia and conspiracy culture and it links to me it links into brexit because there are so many people keep talking about the elites and it happened in america american politics too these sort of shadowy elites um and there's a lot of you know and people like alex jones the famous conspiracy theorist seems to be you know he helped mm. pretty much get trump into power in my opinion um and certainly in the uk we've had equivalent conspiracy theories around the eu election and actually some of them even come from the states with via alex jones of course well alex you know conspiracy culture comes from the comes not from russia itself it comes from the soviet union where everything was a conspiracy of the elite yeah 
mean, you know, there was the proletariat, the average worker, and then there was the communist party. And then within the communist party, you had, you know, the communist elite, the only people who were allowed to use the supermarket and the grocery store. Mm. So, of course, in their world, everything was a conspiracy because it was a conspiracy. <laughs> but, but it left, uh, but in the Soviet Union, they controlled what people were led to believe with their famous instruments of, of lies. Mm. The, you know, the newspaper Pravda, right? So, their, their version of the Socialist Workers' Daily. Pravda for, seven, for, for 50 years was, was literally meant, you know, which means truth in Russian, mm. meant lie to every other person in the world because you couldn't believe a word of it. And Russia, oh, for decades, carried out very sophisticated disinformation operations which harnessed the pers- a person's natural belief that there were forces outside of that. Yeah. Um, you know, all of these anti-Jewish conspiracies which had existed for a very long time and which existed, uh, you know, uh, which in the capitalist world, that there was a, that there was a Jewish elite, the Bilderbergs mm. and the Rothschilds, who secretly controlled all the money in the West. You know, the Soviet Union put that, pushed that against us as well, right? As a way of dividing us internally. Uh, when I say us, I mean the, the collective, you know, Western democracies. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and it became even more prevalent after Adolf Hitler attempted to eliminate, you know, what he thought was a conspiracy of Jews in, in, in his part of the world by mass murder. And so, you know, that and I, I, I focus on anti-Semitism because anti-Semitism was the basis of a lot of modern American conservatism. Uh, especially leading into the 1950s and 60s with groups like the John Birch Society, whose ideas back then were so radical and extreme in the United States, but which are openly espoused by major parts of the conservative party today. And Donald Trump, again, who is this, you know, poor man's version of a rich man, um, you know, was one of these people who traffics in conspiracy theories. And so now, you know, we have educated modern adults who, of course, dismiss all of this stuff as, you know, being bad episodes of the X-Files. And you have a man running for president of the United States harnessing these people's beliefs that there is a cabal of elite Mm -hmm. that is now in the West that are controlling everything. And when he says that, Mm -hmm. he means Jews. Mm -hmm. Okay, but he also makes it appear in this 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 bugaboo he now calls the deep state, which is, as we all know, the little lady in Columbus, Ohio, who presses the button to make Social Security checks get distributed. They're all now part of the, you know, this elite deep state. But what's absolutely fascinating is Donald Trump is a man who believes in a global elite. Mm. There is a global elite. They don't control, you know, the, the puppet strings of, of all the governments, but these are the, the oligarchy, the global oligarchy, people who are billionaires and multi-billionaires mm. who live where, you know, a lifestyle where borders don't really mean anything, 
Laws don't really mean anything. Donald Trump does not have $10 billion. In fact, he may be as much as $400 million in debt to Russia if uh, the, you know, the rumors with Deutsche Bank play out. And so, mm. in fact, he wants to be desperately part of that. And this, this rush to be president of the United States is, is his vehicle to be one of those guys who has a $100 million yacht that has uh, you know, a garage and an elevator for $10 million yachts inside of it. <laughs> he actually does not, he doesn't exist in that society. And the Russian oligarchy, whom he met in 2013 for a two-hour private, you know, secret meeting at the Nobu restaurant, mm. made it pretty clear to him that he could be in that group. Because as soon as he came out of that meeting, he started spouting Russia's political party line. And that's why he is apparently in love with Vladimir Putin. Mm. He has been co-opted by, by a, a, how can I put it? He's been co-opted by a level of money he couldn't aspire to attain as president of the United States before or after. Yeah. And what is, so what is Putin's sort of ultimate goal, should we say, with Western democracy? Because he's obviously manipulating everything and he wants something out of it. What does he think he's going to get from all this? Oh, simple. He's going to make Russia great again. Um, in fact, I, I write about this extensively in my book. You know, there he has some philosophers, some who are more influential than others. Uh, uh, you know, but there's one in particular, a guy by the name of Alexander Dugin, mm -hmm. and he's he's active on Twitter. He's at a think tank uh, that you know he calls it a think tank that operates out of Russia, where he espouses the the concept of neo Eurasianism. And Eurasianism was the belief that Russia is, you know, Russia is 75% European, but it has over 75% of its land in Asia, right? Mm -hmm. And for a very long time, you know, Russia saw itself as, as, as a seat where most of its influence came from the Near East, from, you know, uh, in, in, in Asia with touches of Europe. And it wasn't until Peter the Great you know, went on his secret work missions in, you know, in Central Europe and Britain and felt that Russia should be a great European power. Neo-Eurasianism is sort of a hybrid view of that. They believe that they should be a great European power. They believe that they should harness the energy of the East, but that the world that has existed since the end of World War II, which goes like this, the Washington the European capitals, the rest of the world should be inverted to Moscow, Washington, the European capitals, the rest of the world, mm. which has a Moscow centric center of influence. And believe it or not, Vladimir Putin is doing an exceptionally good job of rebalancing the Western world into one in which Moscow's power, secret operations, uh, cyber warfare influence is, is really pushing the West to where his opinion matters right now more than the president of the United States. Yeah. And his ultimate goal is to break up the Atlantic Alliance. That is NATO, the European Union, and all of those, those relationships in which the United States was first in the world 
and European capitals were their partners. And he's going to invert that. Moscow is going to be first in the world. Now, Russia, by the way, is a trailer park with atomic bombs. They are a poor nation. But this is a man who has parlayed his nation's, his nation's information power, his nation's intelligence power into a viable hybrid warfare tool to where his influence in the world is disproportionate. And, I, and as I, I wrote in the last two chapters of the book, he selected Donald Trump as president of the United States and got him elected. Yeah. One last thing. There's talk of a Russia-China alliance. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, on that? I don't think that there will ever be a, a real viable Russia-China alliance. Mm. I think that Putin does see uh, China as a global competitor. Mm. And you start seeing that right now. You know, if for, for those who are, are steeped in the intelligence world, you'll, you'll know that the power politics uh, of the Cold War in the 1950s and early 1960s were really being played out everywhere. And, you know, especially when it came down to resources and influence. And a lot of American power came down to its, its ability to project its wealth and to project its goods and project its money into countries where they wanted resources. And, you know, the, the, the secret wars and activities in Central Africa, for example, uh, in what's now known as DR Congo, but was Zaire at that time, uh, was a good example of where, you know, Russian activities and American activities and European activities were clashing in the dark continent. China is buying Africa right now, just going in, putting in works and projects, um, you know, leasing farmlands and turning it into an enormous farm for China. But now you see Russia is back in Central Africa and they're going into places the United States has completely pulling out of where the United States won't spend one dollar on what Donald Trump calls S-hole nations. Russia is now back down there, even with its mercenary group. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, um, you know, Wagner. Uh, their 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 version of Blackwater down there murdered two journalists who were there to see what these Russian groups were doing in the Congo, wow. and they're going there. It's sort of like back in the old days uh, in the nineteen eighties when executive outcomes was in you know overthrowing governments in in, re in exchange for resources. China is there as well, but China is going the way the Americans went in the 1950s and 60s. They're buying influence. They're giving cars. They are bringing in clothing and, and trade, and they are growing these nations to being Chinese-supporting you know, satellite mm. states who are, who are, who are actually uh, welcoming this and not being treated as, you know, uh, you know as, to be honest, the, the way the Americans treat them, which is a bunch of third-world potentates, but as partners in the great Chinese expansion. So I don't think that Russia and China are, are planning to be allies anytime. I think that China does not see Russia as a, as a, as a global economic power the way that they are. Yeah. The United States will always be a near-term partner, a near-peer partner uh, you know, or adversary to, to China. But Russia sees itself as becoming the decisive information player um, around the world by changing Western Europe into its own, you know, 
version of its, uh, however you want to describe this sort of totalitarian strongman, you know, Euro fascism that, that, that the United Russia and Vladimir Putin's political party is. And, you know, and here's the way that they do it for all of you who, who may say, wow, this is fascinating. How are we going to become under a totalitarian state? Well, it's simple. You're voting for it. The way that you destroy democracy is you put it up for a vote. And that's what we saw in the United States. We had an election that hinged on 77,000 white male voters in three counties, not states, counties Mm. in the United States. And it turns out that these areas were some of the largest Russian information operations areas. To the point, again, as I said, we have what's now brewing to be the greatest scandal in the history of the United States with a president who may, in fact, be an asset of a foreign power uh, and which could lead to the greatest, uh, you know, act of treachery in American history. And that's saying something, considering that, you know, uh, we had a general in the American Revolution defect to the British side and is buried in Battersea. So, you know, when it gets to treason, (laughs) you know, uh, the name Benedict Arnold in the United States elicits a spit by 320 million people. <laughs> it remains to see whether Donald Trump will eclipse him at that. And I'm, I'm writing a new book that argues that he blows Benedict Arnold out of the water by an order of magnitude. Yeah. I suppose my one observation with Trump at the moment, he seems to attack every institution that will hold him into question. Yes. And, you know, I, I wrote about this in, in one of my later chapters mm. because what I did in Plot to Destroy Democracy is I, I outlined all of the Russian information and, 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 and active measure organizations and how they transitioned from the Soviet Union's activities to those in, in the modern FSB, the SVR, and uh, you know, uh, other groups like the GRU and their, and their NSA, which is the Special Communications Information Service, and how all of them transitioned from these communist systems into this modern world using information warfare, but how they used and retained all of the lessons learned of the Soviet Union to damage Western democracy. And, you know, very little of that has changed. It's the ability to project that information at the speed of an electron to influence, which arguably in the United States right now, 40% of our nation will not believe what they see objectively before their own eyes. They will only believe what Donald Trump tells them to believe. In fact, Trump said that in in one of his speeches where he said, you know, um, you know, you'll see things on television. Don't believe that. Don't believe what you see in the news media. Mm. And what you see is videos of Donald Trump actually speaking. And it goes back to that conspiracy society, right, uh, that, you, that you, you talked about. And Russia has managed and engineered beautifully to do this. You know, if you, if you want a fascinating read, um, all you have to do is, is go and take a look at the NATO, in, um, the NATO handbook on Russian information warfare. Okay. And you can read the entire history of this, which is online, and you'll see that this has disproportionate influence. In fact, I, ref- I view Russians, Russia's attacks uh, using information warfare as equal to cruise missile attacks 
in war. Mm. It's just that the combat results when they imp- when they they when these weapons reach their targets is that they change the minds of your own country to essentially n- betray your own country. Yeah. It's absolutely fascinating and it's happening on a massive scale in the United States. But I still believe that when when this story is open and done uh, a pretty hard 25% of America won't believe it. Yeah, I mean, I'm just amazed by how many so-called um, anti-communists from the 70s and 80s because themselves conservative somehow don't understand or believe Russia could do this. You know, and I constantly, when I'm, when I'm doing interviews on television, I constantly remind people that Vladimir Putin is an ex-KGB officer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is his job. And, you know, I, I got into this great row with Glenn Greenwald uh, over this because he came out and insulted me one day and he said, you think that Vladimir, you think that an organization that went out of existence 25 years ago is still involved in, in intelligence activities. And so when I'm, when I'm doing interviews or I'm doing speeches, I do this great little skit where I say, okay, this actually happened. Right? <laughs> when the Soviet Union fell, okay, and the KGB, you know, nominally went away and had itself. Its first iteration was the FSK, and then it became the FSB. Um, a guy from maintenance came out, right, went over to the letters KGB, <laughs> took down K and G, and then put up F and F, <laughs> and then went back. And the transition was over. (laughs) How did he take it? It's it's like, it's like saying MI6 will now be called the secret intelligence service. Okay. It's always been a a secret intelligence service. It is always going to be the secret intelligence service. And it always will be no matter what you call it. Yeah. And so Vladimir Putin was one of these officers, and he brings with him all of the corporate experience in attacking the West. It's just now he has an outrageous budget, and he can make an unlimited budget, and he can now use the studied activities of, of, of the Soviet Union to damage the West. Only now, you know, now he can do it with, with in, insane amounts of money. Yeah, yeah. And he... He thinks more long term than we our politicians do as well. That's the other thing I've always noticed because we our politicians traditionally are thinking about just the next election cycle. But it seems that Russia and maybe even China are always thinking decades in advance. Oh, look, yes, Vladimir Putin shoots from the midfield, right? Mm. This is not a guy who is going to the you know to the to corner kicks, uh, as we say in America in baseball. He plays long ball, right? Mm. He is not into this for the short term. This is a strategic activity. Now, here's the difference. Donald Trump believes no one in his government. He is suspicious of anyone with an education. He says that he himself is smarter than all people. And he was the perfect, he was the perfect foil for the Russians. He's the perfect candidate for Russian co-option. So, you know, if, you know, as I, um, I have a quote from the, the famous KGB officer Yuri Bezmenov, who says that what they did and what they do is that they look for, the KGB look to recruit, recruit 
people who were self-serving, self-serving egotists, mm. right? Mm. People who, 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 you know, their own greed impacted everything more than, than, than anything else. And these people were easy to co-opt. They also targeted conservatives, not liberals, when they were recruiting their spies, because liberals understand your goals and could turn on you. Mm. Conservatives just wanted the money. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Malcolm, thank you so much for your time today. I don't want to hold you up all day, but thank you so much for this. Um, are there any other last thoughts that you have you want to share on this topic? Hmm. Well, yeah, I, I want to make uh, emphasize one last thing. Yeah. You know, and, and everything that I've written, as you know, I wrote Plot to Hack America six weeks before the American election. Yeah. Uh, I wrote that book in five weeks. Uh, and it was simply an intelligence assessment of what had to be in place for the Russians to carry out that activity. And it was great that the CIA was issuing an identical report that uh, the only difference between my report and the CIA's assessment was I called the operation Operation Lucky Seven, and they called the operation Operation Grizzly Step. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know they they did have a cooler name, but again, you know, and when I wrote Plot to Destroy Democracy, the sequel, mm. it was designed to explain how Russian intelligence, at the behest of the Kremlin, used all of their old school techniques to modernize them and attack Western democracy uh, and, and, and use, you know, the, the, the Brexit and the, and the French elections as guinea pig platforms and then co-op the American uh, right. Mm. Um, this all, again, brings us to the point where the United States, and I can't emphasize it enough, we are in the single most serious investigation in the history of the United States. And it may come down to that Donald Trump his family and his closest associates were in some instances, actual agents mm. of Russia. Mm. And it appears that that's where Paul Manafort role was, that he was actually an agent of, of, of the Kremlin and was being managed uh, by Russian intelligence. We have other characters who were involved. George Papadopoulos was being co-opted by Russian intelligence. Carter Page was contacted by Russian intelligence, uh, but most of these people were being handled by diplomats and secondary, uh, secondary Russian citizens in order to bring them into the Kremlin's um, air zone of influence. And that Donald Trump himself may have been fully aware uh, that he was a witting asset of the Kremlin, but he didn't care. Mm. He just wanted to move into the presidency to get him into that global elite. We will find out whether Donald Trump and the members of his staff are actual traitors. Yeah. Do we, is there a, um, I know there's a lot of talk about the Mueller report. Sure. What is the timeline at the moment that we're looking at, do you think? Well, right now, I, I, I'm one of the, the people who laughed at the report that the Mueller report would be done by the end of February. <laughs> Look, when they went after my friend Valerie Plame, uh, and, and outed her as a CIA officer. It took them four years to get to that indictment. Mm -hmm. The Mueller report is, the Mueller investigation is moving at breakneck speed. I mean, they indicted the national security advisor to the United States within a year. And they essentially were investigating to determine 
whether he had been a turned Russian asset. Mm. This is the, the former director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, right? Yeah. This was, you know, uh, who may have been working with the Russians. Turns out that he wasn't. He was just being co-opted via his boss, Donald Trump. Uh, but we have, you know, over 100 indictments or, that are, you know, that are out there, including against Russian subcontractor intelligence agencies. Uh, and others. Mm. This is a massive investigation. It will not end in 2020, though aspects of it will. Uh, I think the counterintelligence component of this, where they are, you know, as I was the first person in the United States news media to call this for what it was. I was, uh, you know, on, on July 25th, 2016, I said that the United States was under attack and that this would lead to a massive counterintelligence operation. And at the same time, little did I know that John Brennan was calling the director of the FSB and warning him that the United States was well aware of what was going on and that we would take this, uh, you know, with great seriousness. But once Trump got into office, you know, that essentially stopped. Mm. Robert Mueller is the, the last bastion of determining whether this is going to work or not, whether American constitutional republicanism. Uh, you know, uh, our our form of democracy will exist. You know, Robert Mueller and our Congress now that has just been put into power. Because mm. prior to that, no one was investigating anything. Donald Trump was acting like a mafia boss. He thought that he owned the system and was going to get away with it. He is now smashing headfirst into the guardrails of democracy. And for the United Kingdom's sake, you better hope we get to the bottom of this. Yeah, definitely. We live in very interesting times. Terrifying <laughs> times. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, Malcolm, thank you so much for your time today. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Well, most of my work is on, I'm, I'm the terrorism analyst, uh, and right now for the last almost three years, Trump-Russia analyst <laughs> for MSNBC television. You can watch that at msnbc.com. Uh, you can watch all of our programs and I'm on Twitter. That's where I do most of my commentary at Malcolm Nance. Uh, and, uh, and of course on great podcasts like this. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Malcolm. It's my pleasure. Like what we're doing, connect with us on Twitter at dry cleaner cast. Support the show by becoming a dry cleaner cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Thanks for listening. This is Need to Know. <laughs>